Welcome to the new season of The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Chris Albert from National Geographic, and this season, we are diving deep with the artists who make our documentary films and series stand out amongst the rest. In this episode, we have the pleasure of chatting one-on-one with the incomparable Daniel Pemberton, the artist behind Welcome to Earth's expansive score. From capturing sounds with the unexpected, a glass water bottle can do wonders, to capturing the emotions of our explorers as they plummet thousands of meters under the sea, Daniel's composing helps zero in on the emotional moments in the series. Please join me in welcoming my friend, composer Daniel Pemberton. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. I have to tell you, this is a podcast I've been really excited about doing. I am the kid in high school who collected soundtracks and not the soundtracks with music and songs on them, the one with just the scores on them. So to talk to, I think, the most prolific composer working today is a real treat. The last time we saw each other was at the BAFTAs. We both left losers that night, but I guess that's okay. We're winners in our heart, right? Losers. There's no losers. (laughs) Everyone's winner. Just someone won a bit more than the other people. You know what? That is a good way to think of it. Someone walked home with a trophy and the rest of us walked home glad to be there. I strangely do seem to get nominated for quite a few things, but I don't always, well, I rarely win, especially if I turn up. So what I always do is I always steal the cutlery. So I actually have a drawer of um, teaspoons, which are all from BAFTAs, Oscars, any ceremony where I go to, I think I'm not going to win, which is most of them. I steal the teaspoons and all my teaspoons are from award ceremonies. Okay, that's amazing. And I feel like that's a scoop for the podcast. So thank you for sharing. I stole the champagne glass from the pre-party for the BAFTAs because it had the cool BAFTA logo on it. So that'll be our secret too. Yeah, if you put a logo on something, at those kind of events. It's like, you might as well just write, please steal this item. <laughs> all that stuff just gets nicked. Abbey Road Studios used to have all these mugs like you have with National Geographic on saying Abbey Road Studios. And part of their budget was like, these will get stolen by every single person who comes here. And they are. So stop doing them now. So I'm excited to talk to you about the Welcome to Earth score. But before that, I just was curious, did you always know you wanted to be a composer? What was your path to getting to where you are today? I got very into electronic music when I was a teenager. So I started off very into like Vangelis, Jean-Michel Jarre, Art of Noise, which weirdly really links into Welcome to Earth, which we'll get to in a bit. But I sort of wasn't that into music. And then I went to this planetarium show with like this crazy synthesizer music and it totally blew my mind and my life was never the same. Got obsessed by that. And then kind of in the mid 90s, this kind of like kind of really interesting electronic scene started coming about in London based around sort of ambient avant-garde electronic music, people like Brian Eno, The Orb, Future Sound of London. And I started making music like that. And I was still pretty young. I was like 15, 16. And I used to go to weird raves that were very underground and just give people tapes. Like, I've made some music. And through that, I got a record out on this quite obscure but influential label called Fax, run by this German composer called Peter Namluk. And director heard that. He asked me if I'd do a documentary he was doing. And I was still at school. So I was like, sure, yeah, why not? I'll give this a go. So I'd do my homework. Then I'd come home. 
after done my homework, I would try and write music as a documentary. And he liked it, so I did it again. And I kept doing it, and that's kind of literally my entire career has been just, all right, someone else has given me a job, I'll keep going. What was that documentary? It was actually an amazing documentary called Jacques the Internet. And it was amazing because it's so timely and wrong. There's a media commentator in Britain called Janet Street Porter, and this would have been in around 1994, 1995. And the documentary was basically her doing a kind of like opinion piece, half hour opinion piece on why the internet was nothing more than a passing fad. <laughs> and was basically the equivalent of CD radio. And she was just basically saying this internet thing will never catch on. It's for geeks and losers. No one's going to care about the internet. It's stupid. And obviously... She might have been slightly wrong. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you ever go back and listen to that score that you did for that documentary? I mean, I'd like to hear it. I have no idea how I can hear it or find it. It was done so long ago. I had a tape machine, had a four track, one synthesizer. I didn't have anything like a sampler. I used to have a mini disc recorder and I would actually make drum loops on the mini disc recorder by just pressing loop and looping things, which was completely like... The idea of doing it now is so crazy, but it's that thing when you start off with very little, you kind of try and make the best out of what you've got. So I love that the very first film you scored was a documentary because today we're going to talk about Welcome to Earth, the nonfiction series. So I feel like a little piece of your heart must belong to the nonfiction world and creating music for projects like that. Yeah, docs. I mean, I really started off in documentaries. That's really like, if you want to look at like my entire DNA as a composer, it is all down to documentaries, really. Like, that's all I really did just for the first, like, you know, for the first decade of like me working is pretty much 90% in documentaries. Like, I got to work with some really great directors in Britain who were really cutting edge into doing things very differently and very experimental filmmakers. And there was a very good culture in Britain at that time on places like Channel 4, where you could do unusual stuff. And in fact, some of those people have ended up, you know, like on One Strange Rock and even on Welcome to Earth. A bunch of those people I knew from that scene are now on this. And that's been one of the funniest things about this project is they're like, oh, wow, we're working together. I didn't think that would happen, like, you know, like 20 years later. It's a small world sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Also with people like, if you've done something a lot, you really, you know, you get, I don't want to say good, well, you do get good at it, but you really start to, the more you do, the more you learn. And I think there's people in Britain who've had so much amazing documentary and national history experience that it's always going to filter onto bigger projects. So cut to where you are now in your career and you're so in demand. What about a project has to speak to you to want it to be something that you'd like to work on? Because it's not, you know, when you take a project like Welcome to Earth or a feature film on, that's months and months of commitment. Yeah, it's got to be, for me, it's always got to be something that feels special and feels different and something that's going to allow me to kind of inject my own personality into the film or project. Or it's got to be something like I like completely connect with. And, you know, if we look at like that project we worked on previously, The Rescue, I just loved that film so much. I was so moved by it and inspired by it. And originally, I didn't think I could do it because I really wanted to do it, but I just didn't have the time to do it. But then, you know, we had some scheduled things change up and I could. But with something like Welcome to Earth, what I love about it is the fact that it's filmmakers trying to sort of reboot and reimagine the whole idea of what a natural history film can be. And even the phrase a natural history film feels wrong because that's not what it is. It's like it's 
such fantastic imagery and storytelling. And I always love the fact that I'll watch things. I'll be like, I have never seen anything like this in my life. And there's so many of those in this series. And the fact that, you know, with like Darren Aronofsky kind of overseeing it from afar, like the fact that he wanted this vision going through like his kind of playbook of like, let's do things differently. Let's not do them the traditional way. That's the stuff that kind of gets me excited. Can you walk us through when you decide to score something like Welcome to Earth? And what's the next step? What is your process from when you start to when you get to a score that you're like, this is it? Okay, well, every project is quite, I always try and work in a very different way on everything I do. Because that way, like I sort of don't know what I'm doing. So it forces me to sort of really concentrate and work out how I can make this project feel unique and special for that film rather than like, I'm just going to do the thing I always do again. And so with Welcome to Earth, the first thing really was like thinking about what the sound world was going to be. And I always wanted it to feel like nothing you'd heard before. Like the biggest thing for me with this series is like, the series is really about seeing the world in a way you've never seen it before and experiencing the world in a way you've never seen it before. And that's kind of the journey that Will goes on through it. He sees things that, you know, he's never imagined or you know and you see as a viewer there's like you know you go to the bottom of the ocean you see these crazy fish and things you're like wow the idea this even exists in real life and it's not science fiction is really kind of mind-blowing so i didn't want it to sound like a traditional score and there's lots of ways i could have made these things very big like i could have done a very kind of you know here's a grand orchestral moment but i always wanted to fight against that and try and look at the nature look at the scale and make a palette that felt as otherworldly as the imagery. So that would be trying to use as many different instruments that weren't traditional. So a lot of it was like trying to build a lot of unusual samples. I'll, I'll, I'll create a lot of textures and sounds out of anything from like water to rocks, you know, flutes or guitars, and trying to put all these kind of like quite disparate natural elements all together in a way that hopefully it's almost like an orchestra made of sounds of nature and electronics and anything else I can kind of put together that makes it feel unusual. Like in the film, there's a bit when they go to Mosquito Bay and you got these like amazing bioluminescent fish and all these kind of things. They just look crazy. They're like electronics. They're like rave visuals. So I wanted to have like sort of more electronic and look at it in a way that was from a viewer connecting what you're seeing to a kind of more light neon driven mindset. Let's play a little snippet of that. Daniel, the audio palette for Welcome to Earth, I think, was something like 159 pieces that you put together. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, there is quite a lot of music in it. The whole of it is in the show. What I would do would be I would like to experiment very early on. So I found some films I will get very, very attached to picture and work incredibly closely with that. Just going back to what we talked about earlier, The Rescue, for instance, every second of The Rescue is 100% scored to picture because it's all about story turns and that's the most important thing for that project whereas this project i always felt the most important thing was tone atmosphere and the unexpected 
And the best way to get the unexpected is to experiment and not be locked into picture at the beginning. So what I would do early on is just sort of make pieces of music. I'd look at some visuals, I'd get stuff in, and I'd just sort of like imagine ideas and just sort of throw things together. And I think another big factor in this was also COVID because this all happened during lockdown. So that also made me go, okay, I am going to be stuck in this room, like literally this room I'm in now for like, you know, I didn't think COVID was going to be over very quickly. Everyone was like, I'll be over in three months. I'm like, this ain't over in three months. <laughs> Still not over. Yeah. So I was like, I've got to make everything myself in this room almost. And I love having limitations in some ways. So I've got like a huge bank of sounds that I've collected over the years that, you know, like even yesterday, like I was saying, I went on a walk, ended up in this church near Glyndebourne. So they have the big operas. That's beautiful old stone church. We spent to look inside. And one of my friends sort of clapped and I was like, oh my God, the reverb is amazing in this room. So I was with two friends of mine. I'm like, right, we're just going to whistle weird harmonics. And I had a little recorder. And so we just got all these kind of weird textures. I don't know what I'll do with that. Like, in fact, I might even be able to play you a bit of this. Let me see if I can play it. Oh, that'd be so cool. That's so cool. So we just recorded like a bunch of strange whistles. And then that sound at one point, it might end up never being used, but it's also like, I'll turn that into an instrument, like a manipulate digitally. And what makes that sound interesting, for instance, is there's a bunch of things. It's like three people whistling and it's completely random. And I'm sort of trying to conduct it in the church by telling them when to come on and when to stop with my hands. We hadn't planned to do this at all. It was completely impromptu. But the stone in the church just gives this insane reverb, which is why cool stuff always sounds fantastic in churches. But you often don't do like sort of weird atonal whistling. And it feels very organic because you've got both the sort of human side of it and the reverb of the stone, which is just as important. So for years, I've done things like that. And I've sort of collected these kind of things. And I've been like, one day, those sounds will come in handy. And guess what? They did on Welcome to Earth. That's amazing. Can you give me an example of a few sounds like that that you found that you incorporated into Welcome to Earth? I did a lot of stuff with water in my kitchen of trying to get like interesting water sounds with saucepans and just dropping things into the water and moving. Like even like here, right? I got like, this is quite a good one, which obviously no one can see this, but I always have a water jug next to me. And what's interesting about the water jug is you can tap it, but you can bend it. And it will change pitch as you turn it. It will change pitch very slightly. And the more I drink, the pitch will change. So I'll then be like, now it's a bit higher. Hear that? And so I might just sit around and be like, oh, I'm just going to drink this water. And I'll drink a bit more, like even higher. Probably is I need the toilet in this. <laughs> so there, you got that, right? So you might just make a sound like... And that's just a piece of metal against glass and the glass has got some labels on it and that's what's giving a nice kind of... But it feels very organic. And I think one of the things with Welcome to Earth was it's really important to me that as much of the sound as possible felt organic and even if it's like electronics, the electronics felt very electric. 
like they wanted to feel like electricity, not just like here's a synthesizer sound. So anything I could make that was kind of like interesting and organic in my flat, I did. And I think probably the sort of the one that I kind of like the most, that's sort of the, not really the weirdest, but it is for me, is there's two tracks on the album called Welcome to Earth, Hello and Goodbye. And I really want to do something with sort of vocals. And I kind of realized it's quite complicated during COVID to work with someone. So I thought, well, why don't I just do it myself? The downside of that is I can't sing <laughs> at all well. I'm really not a good singer. So but I was like, well, okay, let's see what I can do by the fact that I can't sing very well. What can do? So I did this track and I thought, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and sing and slow it down a bit. And I'm going to try and sing in the pitch of this track. So I did that. It was all right. It wasn't great. But then you can speed it up. So I sped it up to the right pitch. And then my voice speeds up. And as soon as you speed a voice up, it always sounds more interesting. Then slapped a load of pitch correction to stop me going completely out of tune, but not too much, on the notes that I knew were right for the track. And then I had all these kind of weird vocal textures, which, you, you know, if you hear that track, they're just all over it. And I love the fact that that, you know, it almost sounds like a female voice or falsetto because I sped it up. But as actually me singing badly, sped up, put through a lot of funky pitch correction. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I want to play a little bit of that track for our listeners. I was reading an interview you did and you said, I like being forced into a corner and trying new things. And I think you've touched on that a lot, but is that something you've always liked in your career? Yeah. Okay. This is kind of an interesting conversation because if we think how we started off when I talked about doing my first project, I didn't have much gear then. I had hardly anything. And that forced me to be creative. And I think I don't have an abundance of gear, but within my computer, I have so many things now. And the sort of possibilities kind of are almost endless. And as a result, you end up, you know, if you're not careful, you, you end up with this kind of mash with no identity, no purpose. And I think when you have less to work on or less to work with, it forces you to be more creative. So when you're like pushed into a corner where you decide I'm only going to use, let's say that water bottle, but I was only going to use that water bottle and those whistling sounds I've got, you're like, okay, that score will be interesting. It might not press the buttons that people want. But, you know, the trouble with a lot of the creative process is it's who are you working with? What do they want? Do they want things to feel comfortable and like stuff they've heard before, which I call like a reheated meal. Like a lot of cinema these days is a reheated meal where it's a meal you liked before and we're going to give it to you again. But what's great is when you get to create something super new, it's like a whole new meal, which doesn't have burgers and chips in it. <laughs> I mean, everyone likes burgers and chips. But today, we have couscous. Daniel, one other scene that a number of our podcast guests have mentioned that I wanted to ask you about is Will going to the bottom of the ocean in a submersible, something you and I will probably never get the chance to do. How do you go about tackling a scene like that? I mean, that's a hard one because there's a whole bunch of stuff in those scenes. Like one of the things... I really like was the stillness of that world, first of all. So when he first goes in, the fact that it feels like so 
still and tranquil and like the liquid element of it. So there's a piece called Out of the Dark. And that is like a lot of clusters of clarinets that I'd recorded that are like very close together. And so when you get notes that are very, very close together like that, they end up blending in a way you don't really know what they are. And I kind of felt that that felt very liquidy to me. But it's huge expanse. And I wanted things that felt very organic and slightly amorphous. So I then put that through some phasing and things, which would make the sound sort of move in a sort of more watery way. And then I'd like point little elements, like you might see a fish or a light or something, and then I would drop something on top of that to like pinpoint that with sound. And then when you get further down, they do the bioluminescence. I wanted to make all the kind of, to go from this stillness to suddenly explode into this world of color and like all these amazing different animals, lights, fish. You don't know. I mean, it's such a crazy scene that it looks so, when I say it looks so fake, you just can't believe that's actually real. I really wanted sound that went from this kind of dark stillness to suddenly this explosion of color, sound, texture, light. So stuff like that is really fun to do because I'm sort of trying to make sounds for every everything you see on screen and trying to like capture that feeling. I can guarantee to our listeners that it happened because I saw the insurance bill for that shoot. <laughs> Let's take a quick listen to your score for when Will was going to the bottom of the ocean. I want to ask you about one more scene, which is the volcano scene where Will goes into the active volcano. A number of our other podcast guests have talked about that scene. And I, I like something you said in an interview about how you approached it was that you said, now I want you to feel the heat from the volcano through your score. How did you go about accomplishing that? It's really hard to describe. Like, first of all, like, our episodes opens with them going to the volcano. And I wanted the volcano to have like this kind of like this character that was just huge and menacing and otherworldly. Like that's a kind of weirdly very electronic cue, that one. And it's this sort of like synthesizer arpeggiator going. And the reason I wanted to do that was I kind of felt like synthesizer arpeggiator is just kind of going same notes over and over again, which you know from like, let's say, Giorgio Moroder. And Donna Summer, I feel love, which goes bum 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 bum. So you put something like that into synthesizer, makes us crazy noises. I feel love, for instance, is very stable, which makes sense because it's a pop song. Yeah, you know, the notes might get tweaked, they might open the filters, so a bass line's like wah wah, but not much else. Whereas what I want to do is have this thing and it get more and more unstable, slightly out of tune, in and out, because I kind of felt that's what the lava feels like. You know, you've got this lava and this sort of bubbling energy of a volcano, which is just moving round and round and round. And every now and again, you get these, these sort of things that fly out. So I wanted to do that with the synthesizer and try and make it feel like it was a volcano. So you do things like that, which 
like it's kind of funny i've never explained that to anyone before in my life but it's like those are things i've done that maybe no one will ever notice but hopefully when they watch the show they feel that you watch that sequence and you might be like hey this is just cool this is cool and exciting will smith's driving into this big volcano but what i want people to do is when you do stuff that's unexpected or unusual it forces them to engage with the scene because if you do something where you go this is scary big scary music you sort of go oh okay i'm being told this is scary fine it's scary and you don't really think about it you go that thing's scary whereas if you kind of make music that has maybe an edge of fear but you don't really know what that is if you can make people go oh what this is strange how am i feeling why do i feel odd here i don't know what this is then they start going, oh, my God, this is terrifying. You start looking at what's actually happening. And that's when you start getting more sucked into a, a sequence or a moment because you're not always being told in a way that you've been told before. So with things like stuff like the heat of it, that would be textual stuff I've made that I just think feels hot. I don't know what that was. I can't remember. There's so many weird noises in this show. I'll listen to some tracks. I'd be like, what the hell was that? <laughs> Let's take a little listen to a snippet from the volcano scene. Some of the score in Welcome to Earth, there's seconds of silence, which I also feel like is part of your score. Can you talk about where that comes in and what makes you decide that that's the right thing to do for that moment? Silence is super important. Sometimes that silence might not be my making. That might be the dubbing mixer. (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely a few bits where I'm like, oh, you pulled that thing out. I wish you'd kept it in. But that's every single project I've ever worked on. But silence is very important because if you overload with music, then it never has any impact. So it's like eating. If you eat all day, you don't care about anything you eat. We even wait for 10 minutes, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, this is, you appreciate it in a different way. But science is also a very good way of highlighting things. People always think you need to highlight things by putting a big map on them. But actually, it's just the inverse, the negative of that is always a, just as interesting where you build up and then pull out at that moment and let the silence be the impact rather than an impact be an impact. Can I get really nerdy for a minute for our listeners? What type of computer do you use? What type of operating system? What type of software? Okay, so I work mainly in Logic, which is on the Apple computer system. I like working in Logic because I can write very quickly in Logic, and I've built up like huge libraries of, of things over the years, of sounds and textures, and I try and make as much of the sounds you hear in a show or anything I do, I try and make those so they're all kind of homemade things rather than bought in. I try not to buy in preset sounds. I try to make everything I can so everything feels sort of unique and bespoke. And that's a sort of very big part of my approach. Like if you go through all of Welcome to Earth, pretty much all of them are just things that have been made for me or by me. I've got have an amazing assistant called Alex, who is very good at building these as well now. He's better than me. <laughs> and it's trying to capture a snapshot of the world in the way that I think like National Geographic, like the idea of National Geographic is like a snapshot of the world for me. Like the idea of the magazine and its history is about trying to like take all of the sounds, the culture, the color, 
the experiences of the stuff on the planet and then try to distill it into a score. Daniel, I have to ask you a fun question, which is we've both been to a number of events together. I always like having a fun outfit for Instagram, but you always outdo me every time at every event we go to with your amazing wardrobe. Talk about that for us. I've always been a big fan of color. I always find it strange that we live in a world of so much color, yet very few people embrace it in in how they dress because it's always fun. I like it. And I think it's just one of the things I've always, I've always really enjoyed. Like, I just really like color. And I like the kind of energy it gives to other people and to myself. And I'm always genuinely mystified about why it's so hard to buy stuff in color. So if I go into a shop, I can literally look into a shop. And most shops I go into, I cannot find anything I like. It's really annoying. You just, I just look into a shop. I can scan the room like the Terminator in Terminator 2. <laughs> Nothing here for me. Or I'll be like, whoa, what's that thing in yellow? I'll go and look at it. And I'll be like, right, I'm having that. I mean, look, you can look really cool all in black and there's loads of people who definitely look way cooler all in black. <laughs> but I decided that there's enough of people like that. I mean, if I ever wear all black, it's very, very rare, like insanely rare. People are both completely bemused. They're like, oh my God. But they're also like, wow, you look great. You should do this all the time. I'm like, nah, there's enough people <laughs> doing that. Like the world doesn't need that. So I'll just carry on doing my thing and, you know. It's so great. I love seeing what your wardrobe is every time I get to see you. I want to ask you one other question, which is, you know, you are so good at your craft, but it's also so obvious that it is your passion. What advice do you give people who have a passion that they want to follow, but just haven't done it yet? I think the thing that is great is like, if you do something you really love doing, then you've already kind of won just by doing it. It doesn't matter you know, if it's successful, people like it, if you like it and you enjoy doing it. That's like the ultimate all-time goal, I think, because it's very easy to get caught up in awards or success or this kind of stuff. But it's, these things are like, having been in this world for long enough, they're all nice things. But at the end of the day, like great work is the thing I'm always pushing for and trying to do things that surprise me and excite me. And I always say if something, you know, if you get those people who like work in the city and they've made gazillion dollars, they often retire and want to become writers or musicians. And you're like, just be a writer and a musician in the first place. And you'll be a better one. Because it's that weird thing of like, money can't buy anything I want in the sense of like, why do you want this to write a better piece of music or make a more emotional experience? It's like, you can't buy that. You have to make it. And it's, it's like knowledge. It's like emotional understanding, all these sort of things. And the only things that can be achieved through sort of working at your craft more and more and more. I mean, it doesn't mean you'll get better at it, but when you're chasing something intangible that has no financial value to anyone except you, and it has no financial value to you, it just has a value to you. That is like really exciting, but also terrible because you'll never get there. It's like a lifelong it's like anyone creative who really cares what they do. It's just going to last your entire life. It's, it's a nightmare sometimes. Sometimes I wish I could be like, oh, it's six o'clock. I clock off. I'm very bad at doing that. My flat is a complete mess because every time I think about trying to tidy it up, I'm like, oh, I can make that track a bit better. And of course, I, I'm like, I don't care about my flat being messy. So I'll make the track better. Sometimes I kind of wish I wasn't that into things and I'd just be like, it's fine. I'm out of here. But I like 
sort of pushing it and seeing how far I can kind of take it. I think we've all benefited from your creativity and your passion. I'm going to end with this tweet. When I was researching today, I found a tweet about Welcome to Earth, and it said, absolutely love it, Darren Aronofsky, but it can be hard to concentrate on the visuals because Daniel Pemberton's music is so awesome. How does something like that make you feel? Well, I'm very pleased I, I wrote that tweet and posted it. <laughs> From your fake Twitter handle? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. No, it's super nice. Like the thing is, it's like the thing I really like about doing music and or any kind of creative stuff, like especially music and film, is it goes off in the world and it has these adventures that you have no idea about. There's records that I absolutely love that have given me experiences in my life, moments, memories that the person who wrote that person who people who played on it will have no idea about and even if i told them it will mean nothing to them but that that music has entered entered their life like years ago i used to listen to mark mothersbaugh's score to world tenabums and there's this great opening piece which they do not mix loud enough in the movie and it still drives me nuts to this day that it's not mixed loud in the movie. <laughs> and there's this harpsichord solo that comes in now i used to run i was living with my parents i used to run over a bridge and I'd always hit that bridge when the harpsichord solo came in. And so I'd always have this great moment where I'm going to run faster over the bridge as the harpsichord solo comes in. And it's such an individual moment for me, but it's a very strong moment because I'd always start it at the beginning and that would hit in at that point. He's not going to understand that. Like, it's just, everyone has these, like the thing I like about music is you're creating, it's like you create something that previously did not exist in the world. And, you know, there's something quite, naturalistic about it like nature you're growing something and it goes off and some of these things have great adventures and sort of have great impacts on people lots probably don't they're like daisies that get squashed like two weeks after they've grown but every now and again one grows into a lovely tree or a poppy or a tulip or something and gives people some kind of pleasure and makes the world a better place or not even better it just gives you an, an emotion And, you know, if I can do that, then I'm kind of happy. Well, I think that is the perfect note to end on. From National Geographic headquarters in Washington, D.C., this has been the making of a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Chris Albert, and thank you so much to the incomparable composer, Daniel Pemberton, for joining me today. For more information on Welcome to Earth, please visit natgeotv.com backslash FYC. The Making of a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Chris Albert, Raquel Bravo, and Jennifer Driscoll. Hosted by Chris Albert. Written and produced by Dave Beezing, Angela Pirelli, and Thomas Green. Michelle Vensel, production coordinator, in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.